Welcome back to the Global Digital Banker Podcast. In part two of this Money 2020 special, I continue the conversations around innovation and digital transformation. Guests include Jim Wadsworth, SVP for Open Banking at MasterCard, and Dan Phelps, Chief Digital Architect at TravelX. Getting started, Jim shared some exciting news around MasterCard's new open banking solution, the launch of their new real-time validation for third parties for banking partnerships, the shifts he's seen in trust since the implementation of open banking, and predictions for the year ahead. I'm joined by Jim Wadsworth, SVP for open banking at MasterCard. Jim, how are you? Hey Adele, yeah, good, thank you. And uh, it's uh, two and a half hours into the show and it's frantic already. I know, it's the start of what will be a marathon event. So you've got some pretty exciting news you're going to be discussing on stage today around a new open banking solution. So can you share with our listeners what we can expect to see from MasterCard? Sure. Maybe as a start point, just to kind of define what we think of as open banking. Fundamentally, huge change with how we will all interact with their money, whether that's consumers or businesses. Uh, here in Europe, that's been catalyzed by regulatory activity by a thing called PSD2. Um, as you say, we've made some announcements. We think that this open, the open banking thing and the whole regulatory initiative is great, mm-hmm. but it does also, if you like, leave the way things are being constructed leaves behind, you know, maybe some potential problem areas. And um, really, what we're announcing, therefore, is designed to help address some of those problems and frankly reflects what our customers have been asking us for in terms of help. Okay. So firstly, if you think about hundreds and thousands of banks across Europe all opening up mm. API access to their accounts, that's terrific. And you know, by the end of 2019, we expect the majority of that will be complete in line with banks' regulatory objectives and instruction. But if I'm a third party trying to build services across a major country or across multiple countries, I'm prospectively faced with having to connect to all of those different banks' APIs. And I can do that, uh, but I'd frankly probably, particularly if I'm a small fintech, I'd rather have my scarce development resource focused on building my service. So uh, one of the big things we've announced, it's available now, uh, if people want to try our sandbox out, they can do that, is a connectivity hub. So the proposition there is if I'm a fintech, or for that matter a large bank, looking to take advantage of open banking, I can connect once to MasterCard's connectivity hub, and in the background we will deal with the complexity of wiring up, if you like, to all of those different banks' APIs and making sure those connections stay up. Okay, so one connection to connect to everyone. That's right. One place for a, a fintech or a bank to come to, and we will deal with all that onward connectivity. So that third party can focus on building their service, yeah. taking their service to market, building their business. So that's one thing we're doing. As I say, the sandbox is available uh, through our developer portal, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, by the end of this year, we expect to have reach across really all of Europe, assuming, wow. of course, the bank's APIs are, are available. We think that's important, important enabler of the ecosystem. Definitely, and solving some of those just headaches. You don't have time to be connecting with everyone and then signing individual agreements. It's a lot simpler to go through one. one yeah, that's right. I mean, absolutely, if people want to go direct, they can. But we, we figure we can create value, bearing in mind what MasterCard's great at, you know, that connectivity and building trust between counterparties who don't know each other. We think it's a very logical fit with what we do today. Definitely. A second thing that we are also live with now 
plays into that ha- that building trust between counterparties. So it's available now for, for a bank. If they want to uh, get a real-time validation that that third party really is regulated um, and a check that this transaction that that third party is asking for is like consistent with what the third party does with all the other banks. It's normal, if you like. Yeah. So we're providing a real-time validation of that for banks to you know, really um, help them have confidence that this interaction that this third party is asking for is legitimate and that it's not going to cause the bank and, of course, their customers, critically, it's not going to cause a problem for their customers. So building trust in that ecosystem. And that, that's available now. Um, and we're, Again, we're announcing uh, that a number of customers have already signed letters of intent in our two pilot markets of UK and Poland. Uh, taking either the connectivity service or that the protect service or, or some other stuff we're also working on because um, you know we think it's important and I think customers are uh, you know showing that by kind of coming on board which is great. Totally and I think when it comes to trust it's definitely important for these organizations to ensure that they can trust the other organizations they're partnering with and again for the consumer the end user perspective as well I think you know, we, we saw that some of the initial roadblocks to open banking consideration was around consumer trust. Um, so I think having that for the organisations to then communicate that with their customers is important. So kind of on that open banking yeah. piece, it's almost, I don't know, 15 months on now, say, uh, since the rollout of open banking. What shifts in trust have you seen since when it was first implemented. Yeah, you're right. The UK's open banking went live at the start of 2018 and here we are now in uh, the middle of uh, 2019 uh, and on the verge of the rest of Europe also going live. I, mean, I think, firstly, to say, if, if, you kind of do the, if you ask a consumer or a business, what do you think of open banking? 99 times out of 100, the response will be open what? Yeah. I mean, customers don't understand that and therefore they won't trust it. And why should they? However, if you talk to a customer about, hey, would you like a quicker and easier way to get a loan, streamline the loan application process, then you've got their attention and interest. The fact that that streamlined process happens to use something called open banking, to some degree, why should a customer care? If they've got a, a, a quicker, easier, from a probably more accurate lending application and decision-making process, that's good for the customer and it's also good for the lender. And, and I think that's really the, the point. You know, it's not about trusting open banking. It is, is this a service, something that I, the customer, see value in? And do I have enough information about it? If they're saying, can I have access to your bank account, please? Do I have enough information to know what that means to know that I remain in control of what's happening with my data um, and the service will work properly. Yeah, Those are the important things. Yeah. Important enough to have that customer share their yeah. personal information yeah. to reap those benefits. That's exactly right. And But also, you know, if things do go wrong, you know, does it get put right quickly and in my interests? That's also, you know, one of the best ways to actually kind of reinforce trust in many ways is... You know, hopefully things go right but if they do go wrong putting them right really quickly and to that end the final thing we've announced here uh, we're in consultation with both third parties and banks alike across a bunch of markets is a dispute resolution capability in our core card business of course MasterCard for many many years has operated very successfully very streamlined and efficient dispute resolution processes well we're bringing that experience to bear now for this open banking ecosystem as well so if things do go wrong between a bank and a third party They've got a really efficient way of putting it right 
really quickly and in the customer's interest. Wonderful. And then over the past year, and I know this is feeds into the PSD2 regulation coming out, we've seen a heightened level of collaboration across yep. the European payments ecosystem. So MasterCard, one of the biggest schemes in the world, you're operating almost everywhere, particularly across Europe. So what are some of the biggest benefits that you've realised so far from this? Yeah, I mean, I think first thing to say is that you you know partnerships are really important. Um, the UK, as you say, went live 15 months or so ago. One of the first big services that leveraged open banking that went live there was an account aggregation service offered by HSBC. They delivered that in partnership with actually a couple of quite small fintechs. Um, you know, on the back of those services, those small fintechs have become bigger. Yeah, their business is growing. The customers who've used those services love them, and many other banks are providing similar services, often again in partnership with fintechs. Uh, and we're, we're, we're absolutely doing the same in a variety of different ways. So I talked about our Protect service, for example, which is the one that helps banks in real time understand that a third party is, uh, if you like, who they say they are and that they haven't caused fraud and so on elsewhere. So that service we're delivering in conjunction with a business of our own that we bought last year called New Data, um, which has just some brilliant real-time uh, analytics capabilities to really help make sure that transactions are safe, uh, but also in conjunction with a reg tech called Consentus. And um, uh, you know we're doing that, we're, we're bringing those assets together, putting them together in a way that makes sense to our customers, uh, but absolutely, you know, that whole partnering model is, is we think, it. frankly, whether you're talking about open banking or any other part of the payments ecosystem and innovation they're in, partnering is really important because uh, no one player can get everything done on their own. So then thinking about the next six to 12 months, there's a lot of talk around payments technologies, new ways to pay, um, and just the broader ecosystem itself. What do you think we can expect to see over the next kind of year? Yeah, I mean, firstly, just from a kind of open banking perspective, I and mean, what we saw in the UK through 2018 was really stabilisation going on, to be honest. Uh, but as you got into the first quarter of 2019, volumes have really started to grow, you know, 30% month over month in terms of usage of the bank's APIs. Now, that's from a low base, I accept. But I think that's indicative of a market really starting to get go. And all sorts of interesting innovations uh, appearing that, uh, you know, beyond things like loan processes or account aggregation services, although, of course, they're important. So, there's, you know, and really, I think the level of innovation is constrained only by the creativity of providers and their ability to explain their new widget, if you like, to customers. And we'll see that play out in other markets around the world. But, I mean, more generally across the payments ecosystem every day, and in this show every minute goes by <laughs> with, uh, you know, some new announcement from somebody. Um, and, um, yeah, it's just a really exciting space to be in. There's a lot of innovation going on. There's a lot of M&A going on. And, um, you know, it's a really great space to be in at the moment. Well, Jim, it's been great hearing about the new initiatives launched from MasterCard and really exciting to see how those continue to grow and influence others in the market. Thank you so much. Thank you. Pleasure to meet. Up next, Dan shares the journey of their four-year digital transformation and the catalyst behind the changes, some of the challenges Travelex faced along the way, how to prioritise investment and minimise risk when innovating, and what technology they'll be investing in next. I'm joined by Dan Phelps, Chief Architect at Travelex. How are you? Good. 
Nice to meet you, Adele. So you just led a massive four-year digital transformation journey at TravelX. So can you start by sharing a bit about the position of where the company was when you started and what was the real kind of catalyst to this digital transformation? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, I started in TravelX coming up to four years ago now. Uh, so I moved in the, into the digital team. They created a brand new digital team. Uh, to basically build out a new payments product. So Travelex as a business had got out of the payments business and and sold it previously. Um, They then decided they want to get back into it and and start to diversify from their traditional product set. Um, As you probably know, Travelex, you'll see them in the airport in Amsterdam this morning and I got some euros out uh, just to be a little bit non-digital. Yeah, I was about to say cash payments. I know. know. Sometimes I like money in my hands. But yeah, from my perspective, it was, you know, putting a footprint in there uh, and if you looked at where Travelex were as a, as a business, you know, it's 40-year-old bricks and mortar, been incredibly successful with its direct consumer propositions and airports and, and online, um, and had also a, a very strong kind of B2B and B2C business, uh, which, which had grown up around that. Um, I think the challenges that they had, had maybe culturally and certainly from the technology perspective were, um, you know, they hadn't started to embrace cloud as a, as a proposition. So, yeah, where we were was in data centers, kind of monolithic applications four releases a year if if we were kind of lucky Uh, and really you know a great bunch of people who really wanted to embrace new tech because they've been sat on the same technology for the past 10-15 years and you know everybody wants to work on on, on the new stuff right you don't want to be lumbered with uh, with old technology in your career and um, I mean when I came into the business it was a case of kind of prove it so you know, yeah, pr- prove that it's worth transforming the whole business by doing something small in in a kind of a new area, basically. So I think if we'd gone in and tried to wholesale transform the existing cash business, there would have been a lot of kind of cultural resistance, and yeah. you know, don't don't touch the stuff that makes me lots of money. Yeah, um, me with my job. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So you know, we we started off with a, a direct consumer payments proposition for in in the UK, and basically built out small autonomous teams who can um, be really focused on the customer um, really focused on great user experience um, and, and really building around an architecture which allowed them to release quickly. So moving from that kind of four times a year with our monolithic estate into something where we could release multiple times a day if we wanted to and, and something where we could you know really bring in this concept of putting the customer first, um, working with small, nimble teams. And I think one of the important things as well was a lot of these things kind of fail in traditional FinServe businesses because, you know, everyone talks about agile, everyone kind of follows the methodologies and really it's seen as almost a bottom-up IT thing or a bottom-up technology thing. Um, I think what was really great for TravelX is we had, you know, the backing from the business, we set up the teams right with, um, you know, Know, compliance and risk and cybersecurity and the product guys all embedded in one location in, in, in a set of teams which worked really well together I think you know certainly at the beginning um, so we built out the initial products we proved you know the methodologies and the technology um, we had some great kind of quick wins as well and and then some really you know so some occasions which really proved 
the, the pathway and the strategy that we put down on paper and, and kind of sold to the exec is this is what's going to transform the business. Um, you know, so things like, uh, which I'll be talking about tomorrow actually at the uh, Money 2020 is really how we, you know, transformed what was our initial product, which was a direct consumer payments product into a B2B product within 100 days. And, and actually the... The, you know the tech aspects of that were ready before the hundred days. Definitely got some big news coming in the in the second half of the year, which um, you know really, uh, I guess, drives home that message that what we've done has been correct, and the approaches that we've taken have um, have really transformed the business. And then from such a big transformation to where you are now, how did it play out in terms of your initial expectations? Were there any different outcomes there? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's it's one of those things with, um, I guess, having you know two two speeds in the organisation that one half uh, thinks that you're cowboys and mavericks, and the other half thinks that you're kind of slow and old fashioned. And I guess it's that that kind of paradigm that you get between fintech and finserv. Um, but I think what we did a, a really good job of is actually bringing. Um, the people who'd worked in the, I guess, in the traditional stack in the traditional ways, brought them into those teams, and, and you know we, we we picked out people who we felt would be able to run with the, the new recruits that we brought in, um, and then we embedded those traditional back office elements into the into the teams themselves. We didn't do that at the start, and I think that caused it, you know it, it, it slowed things down a little bit, and we were wait, waiting for you know governance decisions and, and those kind of things, and really we just wanted the teams to be empowered and feel empowered enough to make the make the calls and then be able to release or, or be able to design new features um, so I think you know one of, one of the tips I'd say is that if you're if you're embarking on this journey or if you're in the middle of this journey is you know don't be afraid to fail um, but make sure you do it quickly and make sure you know you 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 reap the lessons of those failures and, and come up with ways to fix it and then you know see, see how they go and measure them and, and understand if they're working and I think that was a really great part of the of the team and it, and it still is that we're you know viciously focused on the customer but then also on our own performance and, and and what we're creating and putting out there and i think that's 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 a really important thing to be um very intensely aware and very situational you know situational awareness of where you are in the cycle and how you're maturing definitely having that self-awareness and as you mentioned fast failing it's the, the key to successful innovation so when it comes to organisations that are looking to approach this in a similar manner, you, you gave some advice there around innovation. How do people go about this without spending millions of dollars? It can be such a costly exercise. Yeah, and you know, I guess we all hear of the failures and the, and the problems that, that go along with that. So you know, I think with all of these things, it's a case of starting small. Um, you know, with, with small teams, start on a small problem, prove it out to the business and the, and the business leaders who, you know, may or may not be need to be won over. But I think if anyone came to this conference for, for three days, they'd be completely won over with the with the approaches I'm talking about because <laughs> everyone's talking about it, right? Yeah. Um, but I think it's that it's it's you know linking it to your strategy and getting that strategic backing and and, and getting the leadership back into what to what you're trying to achieve, um, and then just having that roadmap of, of small increments. I think probably one of the other things that we didn't do great at the start um, and something I'm really passionate about now actually is just communicating. 
you know, so telling the rest of the business what you're doing, talking about the successes that you're having, you know, getting the right people involved at the right time to help with the problems that you've got. Because when you work in a, you know, I guess, it, you know, the difference for me between working in a startup and working uh, somewhere like Travelex is you've got 40 years worth of experience. Yeah. Uh, and whether and that's... Brand. And brand, that's exactly, right. yeah. I mean, and if that's a case of, you know, how, how do you do effective pricing? How do you manage risk properly? How do you do cybersecurity? How do you do compliance? In maybe a country where the, the, co- the core team have never experienced that before because we we kind of purposefully built our teams with you know people who had experience in financial services but then also people who had no experience at all but were kind of great engineers or great product people um, so it's you know it's, it's been a, a real strength of the journey that we've been on to be able to call on those um, you know those experts who've been in the business for a long time and um, can you know lend a sage like here to the problems that you're facing definitely and then looking at the year ahead, um, there's been lots of different technologies people are talking about. Um, what will TravelX be kind of continuing to look into, invest in, experiment with? Um, so yeah, probably all the uh, all the usual buzzwords I would I would imagine. Yeah. But you know, we've done lots of proof of concepts with blockchain and, and where we can apply that kind of technology. Um, we're very keen, keen on things like digital cash or. Um, uh, those kind of uh, transformative aspects of digital cash. Um, on, a, on a pure technology side, I think I'm. You know, we're in the process of moving what we set out as a, initially uh, a microservices platform into into a lot more serverless. Um, you know, ultimately the tech strategy that we've got is is putting our best people on focusing on the customer and, and delighting them rather than you know upgrading servers and, and, and maintaining infrastructure yeah. uh, which is still very important for us but uh, you know ultimately I'd rather put our best brains onto onto solving customer problems really so yeah definitely things like serverless but one of the things that you know as a, as a chief architect really um, excites me when I go into work in the morning is, is what we can do around automation and machine learning so we um, have a great program running at the moment around data and data governance and um, how we can apply a lot of automation to traditional techniques, let's say. Um, and we're working with all the you know, the three public cloud providers on, on how best to do that. So yeah, I think really unlocking the, the data um, and, and pulling a lot of automation in place is, is a 2019 thing for us. Personally, on the architecture side, it's, it's more about how... How do you apply the lessons of uh, DevOps and um, and those things into maybe what's seen as a bit of a stuffy practice when it comes to kind of enterprise architecture and, and those kind of things and, and you know looking at ways of how you can how you can automate aspects of that role to really you know focus as product engineers do on on delighting the customer. Well, Dan, thank you so much for sharing the, the story. What a transformation and a great example for others to learn from as well. Thank you very much. Thanks for tuning in this week. To listen to other episodes, head to Apple, Spotify, or Podbean and search Global Digital Banker Podcast. Alternatively, head to globaldigitalbanker.com.